So, welcome to the Caravan of Hope, the brainchild of my very good friend, Mr. Kovido Maddock. Hello, Kovido. Hello, Bryn. How you doing? Uh, I'm doing all right. I'm feeling a little bit nervous, actually. Ah. It's the first time I've done something like this. Okay, well, you know what they say, do something that scares you every day. Okay, uh, well, I'll do, I'll do that today. I'm doing that today anyway. Awesome. So we're sort of sitting here at the hub of the um, Tupikinga um, Otago Polytechnic, and it's a Monday in late November. What are we doing here? Uh, well, we're trying out a podcast, we're seeing how this would work, mm-hmm. um, to put some ideas together to provide information. I think that's the thing, is to provide information to people about what's happening in the world, particularly areas where there's people being oppressed, uh, people being taken advantage of, exploited, or, as is happening in Gaza, people being killed and wounded. Mm. Mm. So my role in this podcast, I think, is just to ask questions that maybe listeners might have. So... When I listen to you in your introduction, I, I say, well, why a podcast? I think a podcast because a lot of people actually listen to podcasts and probably not so many people read things now. Mm-hmm. I could be wrong on that, but that's, that's kind of what I gather. Mm-hmm. Um, and podcast... Well, it's also going to be a conversation between you and me, yeah. whereas if I just write, it's just my own conversation. Yeah. And although sometimes my ideas may be brilliant, sometimes they may be a bit limited. <laughs> <laughs> That's the great thing about ideas. So I guess if we were going to bring people up to speed, we could talk about what we've done in the last three or four weeks. So we initially had a meeting and we talked about setting up a website called the Caravan of Hope. Yep. And it was to provide a kind of a, a, a place for people to come and get information which may or may not be part of the mainstream media, which may have a different perspective as to what's been um, shared across the main platforms. Yeah. So we've got that sort of set up. Um, how do you see the podcast fitting in with that? I guess they, they fit in very well. Um, the podcast, if people are interested, they could then go to the website and have a look at various things. There are various. One thing is kind of an idea of what people can do, because often in these situations like with Gaza, we just all feel helpless and hopeless mm. and powerless. Mm. Um, and this is kind of the, the tactics of bullies. That's what they want you to feel. Mm. But in fact, we do have voices, particularly in this country, and we need to use them or else, you know, the politicians think actually we don't care. So if I pick up that point and say there's a good place for us to dive in and have a starting point, I think you're right. People uh, will see what happens on the news. They'll see the number of children dying. They'll know that there's a ceasefire that's about to end and be scratching their heads as to why it would continue. Um, So... I guess um, sitting here in Ōtipoti, Dunedin, what can people do? Well, first of all, you can um, let other people know what's happening. 
because a lot of people actually don't know what's happening or they kind of don't actually watch the news. Um, I guess that's one of the things coming back to why a podcast, because certainly young people don't watch TV news anymore. So actually having information going out through different media is important. Mm -hmm. um, the second thing is actually to petition, write letters to your MPs, to the Prime Minister, to the leaders of all the different parties in Parliament, uh, and actually say, you know, this is wrong, there should be a ceasefire now, and, um, you know, let's get on with it, rather than waiting for, for something to happen, and another 10,000 people get killed, including 5,000 children. Mm. There's a malaise that fits over people, though, isn't there? You know, when we think, well, it's Israel, it's over there, they've been fighting for years, you know, that it'll never settle down because both sides have just vowed to annihilate each other. And we could probably think, well, I'll write to my MP, but, you know. Is there anything else that in the immediate environs of Dunedin that people can do? Um, there are peace marches that are happening every Saturday, two o'clock at the museum, um, going marching to the octagon. Mm -hmm. uh, and actually this week on um, Wednesday night, there's a vigil at the octagon, Wednesday the 27th. 29th. 29th, today's yep. the 27th, yep. well done. Okay. Um, and that's a way of kind of giving support to Palestinians who are ones who are living here in this country. A lot of them are going through hell because their relatives are getting bombed, killed, losing their houses, mm. wounded, mm. you know, losing families. It, it's horrendous when you hear some of them talk about it. And, you know, it's been going on for years. This, although this one is the most prominent to come to people's eyes. In fact, mm. Israel has done some horrendous stuff to the Palestinians over the years. So when I hear you talk, I, I kind of feel that you are coming down on this issue on the side of the Palestinians as opposed to the Israelis? Um, you're right. You're, well, I'm, what, I, what I'm against is the, the, the kind of unequal treatment of the Palestinians by the Israelis and by the world, basically. Mm. Um, I'm not actually against the Israelis. I think the Israelis, most Israelis would be against this conflict. Mm. I'm against the Netanyahu government mm. um, uh, and I'm against Hamas too in the, the way that they do it. I understand where they come from because the context in which this has come out of is, is 75 years basically of oppression and treating the Palestinians second-class citizens and keeping them in a, a basically a prison camp mm. where they're actually not allowed proper food, water, ed education, medicine, power. It's all controlled by the Israelis. They can't even get in and out. Do you think people here understand what it's like to be living in Gaza in terms of um, freedom of movement, access to resources, work, employment, income, social supports? I think some people do. I think there are people here who actually understand and care about what's happening and been caring about it for 50 years, some of them. Um, but a lot of people don't. You just think, oh, you know, it's just... It, you don't really hear very much about it. Mm. But in fact, um, a couple of years ago, a chap called Gabor Mate, who's a Jewish psychologist, 
went and visited there and uh, he went into Gaza and he said he cried every day for two weeks because how terrible the situation was. If you can hear me making noises, I'm just about to pour myself a cup of tea. <laughs> That's all right. Feel free. This is a very informal podcast, as you can see. Yeah. Um, okay, so we've got that we could march, we've got that we could write to our MP, we've got that we could um, become better informed. Mm. Um, where do you see things going from... Because we're just coming to the end of a, of a window of a ceasefire. Well, I think because I think the ceasefires come about because so many people have actually demonstrated around the world, including in the United States um, and England, um, and people are like, oh, okay. Although the official view, the official American view, is uh, Israel has the right to defend itself, and I think to a certain extent that's true. But if you see that since October the the eighth. Um, actually, only 50 Israelis have been killed and something approaching 20,000 Palestinians. Uh, it doesn't actually look like defence anymore. And when mm. you see the, the houses just being... The, well, not the houses, apartment blocks just being demolished mm. one after the other mm. and the number of women, children, innocent men being killed, it's like this isn't defence, this is something else. It's something crazy. Mm. When I hear about the attacks on the apartment buildings and things, you know, the often the official word is, oh, there are Hamas people in those buildings, They've, the people get warned to leave, that kind of thing. Um, the, the, the propaganda machine is very strong at trying to say we're doing our best to limit civilian casualties, but when you consider how big Gaza is, it's pretty hard to fire something in there and not hurt someone. Um, and the Israelis go can do it within a metre, you know. Yeah. They're, they're so accurate, modern bombs are just like... Mm. And uh, it, this, you know, it's, it's like if you want to actually kill a, a Hamas fighter, you know, kill somebody who's there with a gun, not a woman or a child or some, some man who's pr just trying to protect his family with his body, not with a weapon. Mm. Do you believe that um, the civilian population are being used as human shields? I don't think they're being used as human shields by the Hamas, no. I think they're, they are um, being murdered by the Netanyahu government. Mm. Because they say, you know, the Israelis control Palestine so much they know everybody who lives in every house. So when they're going to bomb an apartment, they ring them up and say, we're going to bomb your apartment, get out. But the problem is... The people get out, which is, even that is, you know, who has the right to tell somebody I'm just going to bomb your house to bits and all your neighbours for, for, you know, two kilometres? Mm. Um, and then they go into a convoy to try and walk to a safe area. They get attacked on the way by Israeli Air Force. And they then go to the safe place, which is meant to be the refugee camp. They're in a school or a hospital the hospital gets bombed, they send drones around shooting people through the windows, or they destroy the schools. It's like, you know, there isn't actually anywhere safe for them to go. It's horrendous. Mm. You know, it's not like they can go somewhere because Israel's bombing everything. So when we started this project, we talked about the fact that we, I mean, you know, the timeline is huge. I mean, it's not just post-World War Two. You know, a lot of this stuff is 
deeply rooted in huge historical um, timelines. But when we first met, we talked about the establishment of um, the United Nations and um, what the goals of the United Nations were. Do, where do you see the United Nations in this, or where do you not see them, and where do you think they should be? Well, the United Nations was an amazing thing that was set up after for, after the Second World War. Um, you know, it was set up because of the huge, horrendous bloodshed that happened during the Second World War. So people actually set it up saying with the intention, we don't want to have another war. They just had two world wars in 30 years, something mm. like that, mm. and, you know, decimated many parts of the population of East, of Western Europe. Mm. So the intention was actually that it would set up an organisation that would settle disputes peaceably between nations. That was its intention. Um, if that didn't happen, then they could send in neutral peacekeeping forces. Now, unfortunately, what happened within a few months was they then had the Security Council in and they gave a veto vote to everything to five nations. And the five nations were America, England, France, Russia and China. Um, so it means that for the United Nations, like recently, the United Nations voted, I don't know, 129 to, I'm not even sure what the opposite number was, mm -hmm. uh, to have a ceasefire. Um, it couldn't even be binding because the, the countries voted against it, these, these countries, one of those five countries, in fact, all of them voted. Um, and they haven't actually sent in peacekeeping troops. Like you would see when you look at the news, it's not like this is happening somewhere else we don't know about it. In the past, you could say, okay, something happened in Rwanda, we didn't find out until a week later. Mm. But actually we can watch, we see this happening mm. on the news in mm. front of us. Mm. You know, we do know what's happening. And the United Nations is powerless. It's, it's tied, its hands are tied behind its back by this veto power. And I guess part of that is because, you know, every sovereign nation feels it should be able to decide what it wants to do. Um, and, you know, if I think of past United Nations interventions or lack of, you know, I think of the NATO intervention in the former Yugoslavia in the 90s. Um, yeah, those... I don't know what I'm saying. I think what I'm saying is that there seems to be the will to make statements and speeches, but things get a wee bit hard when it comes to practical support or having to choose a side, well, notwithstanding that, that there's a veto. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it, it, as you see in this recent conflict, it's been so difficult even for our, our politicians to mm. actually say, let's have a ceasefire. Mm. You know, it took the Labour government five weeks and I don't think even, I'm not even sure Christopher Luxon has said it yet. Well, the Labor government hasn't said anything. The Labor leader has said something. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, yeah, and Luxon was just saying, well, you know, that's, that's a break in the rules because the caretaker government isn't allowed to make any public statements. Yeah. Um, and so he stepped out. But, yeah, you're right. I saw that in Wellington, um, Tory Fano ensured that the ceasefire sign stayed up. That was, that was erected um, down in the centre city. Oh, that's good. Yeah. 
I mean, I think that's the problem is the leaders are kind of, I'm not sure what they're tongue-tied, where they're tied in. Maybe they fear that they're going to lose military aid or financial aid or trade agreements or something like that. But, you know, you'd think you would actually be able to speak out. We're, we're meant to be a democratic people, you know. But, yeah. what, you know, you'd think that one of our basic rights is say, look, actually, this is inhumane. These people are getting murdered and slaughtered, women and children. It should stop now. Yeah. So then I guess we sort of come back to that um, that that question that we started with, that, you know, okay, here we are in Dunedin, what can we do? There's, mm. And you can understand why people might feel a bit powerless. I mean, there's a lot of traffic on social media, but it's very easy to click and care rather than actually take some kind of affirmative action um, like marching on a, is it, did you say a Saturday? Yeah. Yeah, or um, emailing you or writing a letter to your, to your local MP. Perhaps that's something we could help people with because I'm sure there must be templates and things that can be downloaded um, and form stuff that can be sent. I, I guess there are, and probably you're the person to know about the <laughs> templates, Brent. Well, I, yeah, that, <laughs> that might be something because I, I, I guess apathy... Uh, 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 people's actions can be read as apathy, but it's probably. Uh, um, I guess what I'm getting a sense that you're trying to do is to provide some kind of means whereby people could actually um, know what steps to take. Yeah. You know, because if I think of younger generation, <clears throat> they 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 might um, be posting about it. They might see some of those contrived photos of the Arab boy and the Israeli girl, and the you know those photos and think that's very cute. But like one that I put up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, however, but I, you know, I don't have a problem with that because it's basically expressing a hope. Mm. And, um, you know, I always found that as a teacher, trying to explain this kind of conflict to children is very hard because they just don't get how that could be. That's right. If you ask a child, what should we do? Would they go, oh, well, I think we have to wait for certain conditions before we stop bombing all these women and children it's like they would go stop mm. you know it's somehow our minds we got so complicated do you think though as a citizen looking at it from where we are that we're looking at it all just a bit simplistically that it's easy to stop these things you've just said it's quite complicated i mean if you just look at the way our government's behaving at the moment you know, the veto powers are our biggest trading partners. You know, the, to me, diplomacy tends to be a lot of smoke and mirrors. Mm. And, you know, the language that's used is always really important. Um, I think that was a question. Yeah, I was trying to... <laughs> I think my question is, you know, um, are we just seeing it as too black and white? How much grey is in this situation? Um, I think there's a lot of grey, you know, I think the situation, I've recently been talking to a friend who is from Dunedin, who lived in Israel for the last year, and so she was telling me, living in the south of Israel, in a city in the middle of the desert, um, what a wonderful place it was and what wonderful people there were. Mm. And so, you know, you have to see is that for a year before this outbreak happened, People were actually marching, Israelis were marching, demonstrating against Netanyahu because Netanyahu was trying to get rid of the Supreme Court, which would then make him virtually a dictator. 
and he got two-thirds of the way there. I think two weeks before this happened, they had 100,000 Israelis demonstrating against Netanyahu. And although this might be a cynical view, the way of a lot of leaders in the world is when they're starting to lose popularity, they start a war. Mm. Uh, Or they capitalise on the fact that it's happened. They capitalise on the fact that it's happened, yes. Like uh, my own country, Margaret Thatcher, was incredibly low and then the Falklands War happened and suddenly the whole country gets united against the enemy. So Mm. it's the kind of oldest tool in the book, but what it doesn't show is the cost of that one to the nation that gets slaughtered and also the other cost is going to be for all the Israeli troops who've had to be at the end of the rifle shooting people mm. they're going to have to rem- they're going to have PTSD for the rest of their life it's not going to be the people in government who are ordering them around it's never the people in government like mm. World War One, the generals are sitting in some office several miles behind the line mm. saying oh yes we just want you to go and capture that field. It doesn't matter that the last hundred men who went across all got machine gunned, mm. and if you don't do it, we'll shoot you. So you're saying that um, there's an attitude of expediency and that lives are expendable. That's, that's very much what it is, generally. You find all these people like, you know, Putin invading mm. the Ukraine. Ukrainian lives are expendable, so are Russian soldiers. Mm. Mm. And, you know, prior to that it was Chechnya and prior to that it was the Russians in Afghanistan, you know. the Or the Americans in Iraq. Iraq, Kuwait, Vietnam. Yeah. Mm. Um, but what they have found, of course, is from since Vietnam, you know, more Vietnam veterans committed suicide than actually got killed in Vietnam. And a lot of the rest have horrendous times with having relationships, problems with alcohol and drug dependency. Mm. So beyond the immediate devastation mm. that um, the, the civilian population is going on, you know, I think what you were, we're really saying is, is there's victims on a much, much wider scale. I guess for me, I always feel the shadow of the big players with their hand up the backs of, of, the, of the, um, the agents on the ground. Yeah. And, um, you know... In terms of global size, it's, it's deemed to be a, a minor conflict. Um, in, in terms of the location, you know, it's all, you know, and it's all far away from Wall Street and the Kremlin and, um, and Downing Street. Mm. But, um, and I think here it's the same. Yeah, I think I heard a thing by Noam Chomsky last week sort of saying, well, look, if, if this was happening to a country that had resources that were needed, Mm. or that was a crucial country in terms of the balance of power, it would be a very, very different story. Mm. Oh, yeah, it's very different. Okay. I mean, we only have to look. It's like that's in the conflict, but we don't actually see, you know, there are about a dozen other countries in the world where a similar number of people, well, not not quite as many now, but uh, Mm. a very similar number of people have been killed and we don't hear about it, like in Burma. There's about 12,000 people being killed this year by the government. And then in the Sudan as well. In the Sudan, in Nigeria, in Eritrea, yeah. in the Congo. In fact, we don't even hear about the Congo because it's like it's been so long on a daily basis. Mm. Mm. So I guess to me, when I hear you saying that, I, I kind of feel um, that's probably why 
Um, there isn't a lot of traction and concern for these people. There's media concern. There's there's sort of um, uh, huge appeals going out by Médecins Sans Frontières and UNICEF and all those people, you know, the, the very people we'd expect to be on the ground. But well, it is, but it's kind of, you know, I, I see United Nations, you know, they do huge amounts of good, but mm. it's like they're, you know... They're actually picking people up from the bottom of the cliff who've been pushed over the cliff, you know. And at the top of the cliff, actually, the United Nations could be stopping them being pushed over the cliff, Mm. you know. Because at the moment, if they'd actually done something about the Syrian war, if they'd done something about Assad, who was in any terms a manic dictator, um, they wouldn't have to deal with 10 million refugees. Mm. So um, I think we'll probably just wrap up here, but um, if you had a magic wand mm. and you could change things progressively to get some kind of resolution, what would you do? A resolution in Gaza or a resolution throughout? Just, yeah, to get the whole problem solved. Well, I think at the moment I would do... Just because of human beings, I think at the moment I would say, well, a permanent ceasefire and actually moving towards a two-state solution where actually Israel has its own state and Gaza, Palestine has its own state where they're actually ruling themselves. They don't have their boundaries controlled. They can, you know, they're not living under constant threat and oppression the whole time. Mm. Um, You know, the original statement about by Ben-Gurion about Israel was a beautiful statement, but it hasn't happened. You know, he what saw, was the statement? He saw people living together harmoniously mm. and peacefully, irrespective of race, religion, etc. Mm. I was um, listening to a podcast with Alistair Campbell on leadership. I think I've mentioned this to you prior, where there was a, a chap who was involved in the Good Friday Agreement, peace talks with the IRA and, yeah. um, you know, the, the opposition factions over there. And, you know... All conflicts can be solved, but um, his one caveat was everyone has to go into the room knowing they're going to give something up. And I guess if I had a wish, it would be that they would be prepared to concede to move forward. Yeah. And it has to be that we start to see each other as human beings. You know, that has to be the bottom line. Because at the moment we can only do this because we see somebody else as lesser you know, whatever terms it is than than ourselves. So your whole thrust is really saying let's focus on our similarities. We're focus all on humans on the planet Earth. We are. I mean, you know, if you actually see the DNA of the people in Palestine and the people in Israel, they're probably the closest related people on Earth. And all human beings are 99.9% the same. Yeah. Genetically. Yeah. I guess on a bigger scale, it would be with the United Nations. I think we need to do, like, you know, when your computer gets a virus in it and it starts yeah. doing the wrong things, you have a factory reset. We need to have a factory reset for the United <laughs> Nations. We go back to what the original intentions were. Yeah. And the last thing, I think, is we actually have to give over leadership to the women because I, I don't see men as being capable, actually, of not getting violent, getting greedy... Um, if you look at history, it's just one thing after another, and it's. But whereas if you look at women, they'll kind of go, "Well, actually, I've got a son, 
and a daughter and you've got a son and a mm. daughter and I don't want my son and daughter to be killing your son and daughter or being killed. They would actually sit down together and talk mm. about it. It may take a little bit longer, but I think it would be, that has to be the way that it goes. Well, maybe that's a starting point for our next um, podcast. We could probably talk a wee bit about the United Nations and maybe um, do a wee bit of research about governments where the majority of members are women. I think I read somewhere a very long time ago that um, there's research that that um, says that when there's a, a legislative chamber that has um, a greater percentage of women, um, there's, there's less conflict. Don't quote me on that. I'll, I'll, that's my homework. I'll see if I can find that out. Okay. So uh, thanks, for, thanks, Covido. It's nice to be, be making a start. And, um, yeah, hope you've enjoyed listening to this first conversation. And um, we'll be back. We'll be back. <laughs>